Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that this finds you and your family doing well. I want to thank you very much for joining me. This is just um, giving a little brief introduction here because uh, the, I'm putting up two videos on my YouTube channel, this being the first one, and then one other one. Uh, these are two presentations that I recently put together for an online conference that was held September 17th and 18th of 2021 dealing with social justice and I was just one of several other speakers there was also Chris and Joshua Rosebro Phil Johnson and Dr. Owen Strand and uh so we were the speakers and we we each did two presentations for this two-day online conference and so uh I thought I would put my presentations up on my YouTube channel and uh so these two presentations please don't think that they are a comprehensive treatment or critique of social justice because they're not it's just kind of a bird's eye view of of what i've what i've deemed as some of the um some of the cars that come along the social justice train the engine of social justice is bringing along some cars with it and so it's just kind of a bird's eye view of some of the more prominent and troubling cars of the social justice train. So anyway, if you want to see the full conference, I would I would really commend that to you because there's a lot of good material there. So I'm going to put a link down below there in the description to the uh, YouTube channel, the uh, Did God Really Say Conference YouTube channel. And so all the presentations you can find there. So I, I would commend those to you. And I'm also going to put some links down below in the description of some uh, good books that you can read uh, that deal with social justice. So I would commend those to you as well. So, all right, without any further ado, as they say, here's my first presentation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for joining us for this online conference entitled, Did God Really Say? We are looking at the social justice movement, what it teaches, and some of the implications uh, for the evangelical church. And as I begin my first presentation here, I want to give you an idea of of just how concerned I am about this movement. I, I believe that the social justice movement that has been in the works for many, many, many years, but just in the last three or four years or so, has really come to fruition. The players behind the scenes in the last several years have really uh, begun to lay their cards out on the table and and play their hand. And uh, the, the, this, the social justice winds have blown through the evangelical world like a hurricane. And I believe it is, without any hyperbole, I truly believe it is one of, if not the most insidious threats uh, that I have ever seen to the church. Now, Granted, we understand that the church belongs to Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So um, the church is secure. But nonetheless, the Bible warns us repeatedly about false doctrine and or false teachers. In fact, 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament directly warn about these things. Only the book of Philemon has nothing at least nothing directly to say about false doctrine or false teachers. So these warnings are in Scripture for a reason. We are to uh, note false teachers. They are to be marked and avoided. Paul said in his letter to Titus, teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So we are to both teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. It's not an either-or Situation. It is a both and. And for those of you who are familiar with my ministry, uh, you know that I am kind of known for engaging the Word of Faith movement, New Apostolic Reformation, Charismatic movement, and all of those aberrant doctrines and excesses and lying signs and wonders and all of that kind of stuff. And my concern about that has not ebbed at all, not in the least. But uh, social justice is different. And, and let me tell you why I. I see this as 
as such a threat, and in many ways even more so than Word, Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, in that in our theological circles, or maybe I should say in my theological circles, which would be the conservative, uh, soteriologically reformed doctrines of grace, high view of the sovereignty of God, uh, in in my circles, um, we certainly have people scattered in our churches here and there that to one degree or another may be affected by a Joel Osteen or a Joyce Meyer or something like that, uh, somebody like that, maybe even Bill Johnson and, and some of these others. We have some people sitting in our pews here and there that have been affected by, of course, all of us have family members, friends and family members who have to much greater degrees, but but in our churches, in, in our churches, in, in my theological circles, in the soteriologically reformed circles, doctrines of grace circles, what we've never had is that we have never had any of the heavy hitters, if you will, some of the well-known names in our circles actually preaching Word of Faith or New Apostolic Reformation or Health and Wealth Prosperity Gospel. You know, none of our none of the preachers, the known preachers in our circle have, circles have ever preached this from a pulpit. But with social justice, we are seeing that. With social justice, we are seeing some of the heavy hitters, if you will, who have to varying degrees uh, been blown about by these winds of social justice. And that is unique. Uh, as it relates to my ministry of Word of Faith and all that other stuff. You know, I am, of course, trying to equip people in my theological circles, but much more broadly than that. I, you know, I'm, by God's grace, trying to get that message out to people that are not in my theological circles. But, but with social justice, this stuff is picking off some of our guys. Okay, and it is, it is alarming. I, I have just been amazed at the effectiveness of this aberrant movement. So um, it's a very serious thing. And I know there's a lot of confusion about it. What is social justice? What does it mean? What is it, what is it not? What, what are we dealing with? And you've probably noticed that if, if you watch the, the national news, you've been hearing things about intersectionality and critical race theory and being woke and all of this stuff. And it, it should be a, a real red flag when you're hearing the same kind of lingo in the church as what you're hearing out in the political realm. When you're hearing the same thing in the church that you're hearing in the in the political realm, then you know something is amiss and something is very much amiss. So what I want to do in my two presentations, I want to examine some of the the different cars that come along the social justice train. When you hear social justice you need to you need to keep in mind that it's not just about um, issues dealing with race or economics, and I'm going to talk about those. But there's a lot of other different cars that come along this train, and when you let the engine of the train in, all of these cars eventually are coming along with it. Okay, these cars are not going to be uncoupled; they're coming along with the engine of the train, and so. Uh, these next two presentations, are, it's not going to be a deep dive, okay? We don't have time to do a deep dive into the origins and the, the um, minutia of the various machinations of, of all of the social justice movement, all the moving parts. So I, I want to kind of give you a broad overview, kind of a bird's eye view of the, the main cars that are attached to this engine of the social justice train and letting you know what's coming along with it. Uh, what they are saying, and then biblically, we will examine it, and uh, we will refute those who are contradicting sound doctrine. Okay, all right. So the first car that I want us to look at on the social justice train is indeed the economic car, and as you might suspect from the name social justice, there is an economic philosophy of socialism undergirding this movement. Now. The movement has its roots in neo-Marxism, and uh, neo-Marxism is basically communism relabeled, believes in state uh, ownership of the means of production, and uh, socialism, which is the direction that this country 
is headed to right now, economically speaking. Uh, socialism has been called communism in diapers. It, it is kind of the breeding ground. It is the uh, gateway drug, if you will, to full-blown communism. So communism in diapers. The funny thing about babies, though, that babies in diapers is that babies grow up and babies don't stay babies. So socialism left unchecked does morph and, and grow into full-blown communism. And that's where we're headed. That's the path that we are on right now, this uh, wealth re- redistribution that we are seeing, especially from the current administration, the Biden administration. Soak the rich, tax the rich. Well, you need to know that with the social justice movement that is being adopted by so many evangelicals, uh, there is this is a political movement that is being disguised as a theological movement. Again, same kind of lingo you hear on the nightly news, uh, you're hearing in your churches. So understand that this is a movement that is socialistic in nature, that does not value the ownership of private property. All right, so uh, I don't want to go a full-blown economics lesson here, but I, I want to deal with the theology of this. Is socialism biblical? And the social justicians, to use that term, are arguing that it is. Many of these folks are saying that socialism is biblical, and they have a few proof texts to which they would appeal. And so I want us to look at these. And one of them is Mark chapter 10. This is one of the passages that people advocating for social justice say that, hey, the Bible really does teach socialism. And they're trying to break the loyalty that the vast majority of evangelical voters have to the Republican Party. Evangelicals vote in overwhelming numbers for the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party, which today is now basically a socialistic party. Evangelical voters, uh, the overwhelming majority of them, uh, favor capitalism and private enterprise and low taxes and low spending. And so these social justicians are trying to come in and say, now, wait a minute, uh, we've had this wrong all along. When you look at what the Bible really teaches, it actually teaches socialism. And so let's go to Mark chapter 10. You know the story. This is the story that is uh, widely known as the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus looks at him and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And then he says, you know the commandments. And he cites a summary of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And then, of course, I'm summarizing all this, but then the rich young ruler says, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth up. It had a ring of familiarity with him. He knew what the Ten Commandments were. And then Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And so the social justice proponents say, see, Jesus uh, engaged this rich young ruler and told him to sell everything that he has so that he no longer owns anything anymore. And so it's it's just kind of a uh, community property now. He just sell everything so he's not, he doesn't own anything, doesn't have any private possessions and the money that he receives from selling everything, then he gives it to the poor. And so this is a clear model for socialism. But no, that's not at all what Jesus is teaching here, not in the least. For one thing, Jesus is not teaching a work salvation, but also he was he was engaging one individual person. He was this was not an address to all Christians everywhere to sell everything that they possess and give it to the poor. That was not the point Jesus was making. For this man, his God was his wealth. And Jesus was saying to this man, that thing that is the most important thing to you, in his case, his wealth, get rid of it. Get rid of it because that is your God and anything that is before me is idolatry. So get rid of it, sell it, Give it to the poor people who need it, and then come follow me. This was a call. This was a call for him to deny himself and take up the cross. This was a call for him to bend his knee to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, and he was not willing to do that. He left away. You know, he left Jesus sorrowful because he was one who owned much property. So this is not a, a, a proof text for socialism at all. This was this was Jesus affirming. Lordship salvation. 
Now, far and away, the favorite passages for social justice proponents are found in the book of Acts. There's two of them, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. The rich young ruler, you hear it every once in a while, but it's kind of an outlier. But the social justice proponents love what they read in the book of Acts. So let's look at these two texts together and we'll talk about them. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, beginning in Acts 2, verses 44 through 45. It says that all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. And then Acts four thirty-four through 35. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. Okay, and so these two passages are the go-to passages for those advocating social justice in the evangelical world. And they say, see, this, the New Testament teaches and it even models socialism. Well, a couple of points here. Number one, this is something that the Christians decided to do voluntarily. This was their own decision. This was not a mandate. This was not coming down from the government. They just decided to do it on their own. So socialism as a political and economic system is not that. Socialism is forced upon the people, oftentimes at the end of a gun, but it is forced upon people. This was nothing. This was not forced upon the Christians. They chose to do it. It was a voluntary choice on their own. And they, they sold their possessions, some of their possessions. There's no indication in the text, by the way, that they sold everything that they had. In fact, a careful reading of this shows that this is in the present tense. It says that they were selling. Uh, the, this is an imperfect tense in the Greek. And, and what that means is, is that this selling of their possessions began at a certain point in time and it continued. It did not say, the text does not say that they sold all of their possessions. It says that they were selling it. And so it continued. Now, if they sold everything that they had right up front, then they would have nothing else to sell. The selling could not continue if they sold everything that they had right up front. So the, the very tense here in the Greek suggests that this was uh, kind of an ongoing process as needs arose. So this was not mandated to them. Nobody was forcing them to do this. They just took it upon themselves to do it. And this was a process that continued, which suggests, obviously very strongly, that if the process continued, then these individual believers still had personal possessions to sell and help each other out. So uh, this, was, this, was, this is not a model for socialism. Number one, it was not forced. They chose to do it on their own. Number two, it was a process that continued as the need arose, which suggests that they still maintained their own private possessions. They still had some private possessions to sell as the need arose. And uh, by the way, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, who were slain by the Spirit. Charismatics talk about being slain in the Spirit. Well, Ananias and Sapphira was, were slain by the Spirit. But uh, the Holy Spirit killed them, not because they chose to keep some of the money for themselves. That's not why the Holy Spirit killed them. The Holy Spirit killed them because they lied about it. That was the sin. Not that they still retained some possessions or some of their own money. No, he slew them in the spirit because they lied about it. That was the sin. And dear friends, the Bible assumes private ownership of property. Think about it. What is the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Okay, the eighth commandment would make no sense if God's people owned nothing themselves. It, it, the very fact that the Eighth Commandment is there assumes that people own private property. If everybody, if all of us just had everything in common, 
uh, and we didn't own anything, then there would be nothing to steal because it would just be communal property. So the Bible absolutely assumes and does advocate for the private ownership of property. In fact, not only would the Eighth Commandment not make any sense, but neither would the Tenth Commandment make any sense. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet what somebody else has. Well, that means that somebody else owns something that you don't own. Otherwise, there would be no opportunity there to covet in the first place. So again, the the Bible assumes private ownership of property. And the entire premise of socialism is that someone else has too much and I don't have enough. And that is the sin of envy. Okay, socialism is built upon the sin of envy. So either way you go with however you look at socialism, it is it is not only does it not work, and it doesn't work anywhere it's been tried, it does not work economically, but it's not taught in scripture at all. The Bible assumes and advocates for the private ownership of property. Now, uh, let me say this too. There is nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing inherently honorable in being poor. Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. This is another text, by the way, that some people use. Uh, The rich man died, went to the lake of fire. The poor man, Lazarus, died and went to Abraham's bosom. And some have read into that, oh, the rich man, that's rich, being rich is bad. And so the rich man went to the lake of fire. The rich man went to hell. The poor man, Lazarus, went to heaven. That's not the point of that text. There's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. If if you have worked hard and God has been gracious to you and allowed you to keep keep some of the fruits of your labors, wonderful. Praise the Lord. Uh, be grateful for it and, and use what God has given you for his glory. So there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. Neither is there anything inherently honorable in being poor. The rich man did not go to hell because he was wealthy. Lazarus did not go to Abraham's bosom. Because he was poor, each man went where he was spiritually prepared to go. Okay, the Bible does teach giving. Read Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine. The Bible does teach giving. We are to give to those who have need, and we are. But the the model that the Bible provides for us in giving is not. Uh, it, it is not uh, obligatory. It is not something that is forced upon us. We are supposed to give out of the generosity of our hearts, our regenerated hearts, but the generosity of our hearts and and what as an expression of gratitude and appreciation and thanks for what God has given us and uh, to as an expression of our love and concern for others who do not have what we do. So giving is uh, a command. Yes, we are to give, but it's not something that is to be forced upon us by the government, it is something that we are supposed to do to help our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, that's another New Testament principle that we are to be generous, yes, to all people, but especially to the household of God. Okay, dear ones, another aspect um, of this economic car of social justice is that of reparations. Many in the social justice movement in the evangelical world have been advocating for reparations to black Americans because of the years that they, or at least many of them, spent in slavery, regrettably, in this country. Tabidi Anyubewe, whose real name is Ron Burns, but Tabidi Anyubewe has uh, argued for reparations, as has Eric Mason. Eric Mason is the pastor of Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia. And uh, in 2018, Eric Mason published a book entitled Woke Church. And uh, the foreword for that book was written by Dr. Ligon Duncan. But uh, Eric Mason argues for reparations. In fact, he says that reparations should be paid to blacks for what he described as, quote, 256 years of free labor with nothing but poor eating and poor places to stay. And so he, um, he cites Exodus chapter 22 and Luke chapter 19 is biblical support for reparations. So let's look at these two texts and we'll see if that is in fact what these texts are teaching. Exodus 22 verse 1 
says, If someone steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 19, this is the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, verse 8, But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I am giving back four times as much. So, upon first blush, it might seem that these two texts do in fact support reparations, but except that they don't. Uh, notice in both of these texts, it is the one who has done the stealing. It is the one who has stolen, who is obligated to pay reparations. Uh, the, in Exodus 22, it is the one who steals. It's that guy, the fellow who stole, the thief himself is obligated to, to pay the reparations with the ox and the sheep. And in Luke chapter 19, it is Zacchaeus himself. So uh, a couple of points here. When we're talking about reparations today, we're talking about the government taking money from us through taxes and paying it to a group of people who have never experienced slavery. Okay, so when the when the government takes part of my money as a taxpayer and gives it to a group of people, black Americans, for the slavery that existed in this country 150 plus years ago. They're taking money from, I had nothing to do with slavery. Friends, there is no one alive today who has ever been a slave. No one's father has ever been a slave. No one's grandfather has ever been a slave. Probably not anyone's great-grandfather has ever been a slave. You probably have to go back to like at least a great great. But no one alive has ever been a slave, owned a slave, or known a slave owner, or known a slave himself. So this actually violates, the, the whole concept of reparations violates what we see in Exodus chapter 22. It's the one who steals, who is obligated to repay. And with Luke chapter 19, well, you're missing this text all around because this is the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus went to Zacchaeus and, uh, you know, the story, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he, he was up in the sycamore tree and all that. And uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors were known for stealing from people, defrauding people, stealing from them. And when Jesus confronted him, there was a conversion that took place in Zacchaeus's life. In fact, uh, you read that Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, referring to Zacchaeus's house. Zacchaeus was saved. And when he was saved, an expression of the uh, fruit of his regeneration was that he said, Lord, uh, anything that I have stolen that I'm going to give it to the poor. Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, anything, I will return it fourfold. This was not something that Jesus commanded him to do. This is something that Zacchaeus wanted to do. He he was convicted of his sin, of his sinful lifestyle, of taking taking things from people, stealing from them, and he wanted to make it right. Emphasis on he wanted to make it right. He himself, he was the one who had done the stealing and he was going to make it right. So this is a direct one-to-one -one correlation. The one who steals should make it right. And if, if you have stolen from someone and God saves you, then as, a, as just a, a, an abundance of your heart, an abundance of the gratitude of your heart that God has regenerated, you're going to realize, hey, you know, before my conversion, I stole from people and I need to make that right. And that's what that's what the regenerate heart wants to do and does to. So you cannot take these texts as biblical support for reparations. Now, if you want to find a passage in the Bible that deals with reparations as it directly relates to slavery, there is a text to which you can go, and that is found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 15, 13 through 14. When a master freed a slave, says this, and, quote, and when you set him free, referring to the slave owner, when you set the slave free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. 
You shall give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and from your wine vat. And you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. So there it is. There's a text dealing with slavery and reparations. Who is the one who is to pay the reparations? The slave owner. He and he alone is to do that. Okay? Not corporately, and it's certainly not supposed to be forced on anyone who has never had anything to do with slavery. And that is our case here. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18 verse 20. The person who sins will die. A son will not suffer the punishment for the father's guilt, nor will a father suffer the punishment for the son's guilt. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. A direct one-to-one correlation. The one who has sinned is obligated to make it right. If you have sinned against someone, you are obligated to make it right. I am not responsible for your sin against someone else. You are not responsible for my sin against someone else. And you and I are not responsible for the sins committed by our great, 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 whatever, grandfathers over 150 years ago. The whole concept of reparations as it's being promoted by the social justice proponents in the evangelical world is without biblical merit. The social justice movement in the evangelical world is anything but biblical justice. Okay, dear ones, we now turn our attention to the racial car on the social justice train. And boy, there are few things today that are as touchy as the issue of racism. Few things that will garner headlines more quickly than some act of racism, uh, even if an act is just perceived or a statement that someone makes is somehow perceived as racist. It makes huge headlines, at least when it comes from someone who is conservative or a Christian. If a liberal does it, no big deal. But uh, if it comes from a white conservative, boy, you are automatically a racist. Uh, I remember 20 years ago, I was in seminary, and I remember this story because it was just so bizarre to me. But there was a an airline, and a lady, uh, the, one of the stewardesses, was trying to uh, get everybody settled. And uh, there was uh, one of the passengers uh, who was a black gentleman, uh, could not find a seat, or rather someone was sitting in his assigned seat. And so he was asking her uh if he could get if she could get that person out but there were other empty seats and she was encouraging him just to to choose one of the other empty seats and he said well which one and the plane was trying to get off they were a little bit late and she was kind of rushed and she just said any mini mighty mo pick a seat we got to go i remember that any mini mighty mo pick a seat we got to go in other words it didn't matter to her which empty seat he chose just you know find one and and let's get going well, apparently the eeny, meeny, miny, mo uh, rhyme or whatever, or diddy, apparently has some kind of racial overtones. Who knew, right? But uh, he reported her, and she got into all kinds of trouble for something that was completely innocent on her part. I mean, anything racial was, was the furthest thing from her mind. Uh, just the other day, I saw where a, a, stu- a teacher somewhere in some school said that if you try to maintain discipline amongst your students and having them sit in their seats and be quiet, not talk, and do their work, uh, that is an evidence of white supremacy. So if you simply try to keep order in your classroom, uh, that is that is you trying to superimpose your white supremacist culture onto minority students and you are oppressing them. That is just, that's crazy. A few weeks ago, I heard a story, and I actually had to look it up to see if this was true because I thought it was so Looney Tunes when I heard it. But uh, sure enough, it, it is true that some social justice proponent, a uh, secular one, said that our roads are racist. Roads are racist, you see, because they're black or gray, I suppose, but they're dark. And so when we when we drive on our dark roads, that is symbolic 
of the white man trying to oppress and tread down uh, darker-skinned people. Never mind that darker-skinned people drive on the same roads that us pale faces drive on. So, I mean, it's just Looney Tunes, absolutely crazy. But that is the world in which we live. I mean, everything, everything now is, is racist. Everything is racist. And I'm tired of it. So I want us to look at race and uh, look at what race is, what it isn't, and we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about it because, after all, if we are Christians, it is the Bible that is our authority. The Bible is authority for everyone, but Christians recognize it as the authority. All right, so I want to give you a quote from someone named Svant Pabo. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Pabo is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany and states this, says, quote, What the study of complete genomes from different parts of the world has shown is that even between Africa and Europe, for example, there is not a single absolute genetic difference, meaning no single variant where all Africans have one variant and all Europeans another one, even when recent migration is discarded. So race is a social construct, not a biological construct. Even secular people, uh, anthropologists, even evolutionary biologists, which I don't believe in evolution, macroevolution anyway, but uh, even these people, if they're intellectually honest, they will tell you that race is not biological. Race is sociological. It is a social construct, not a biological one. There is practically zero genetic difference between a black person and a white person. The only difference is a is a varying level of melanin in our skin. But there there's no genetic difference. Practically zero. We are not different races. It is, uh, it, is, it is man who looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is standing before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at people's hearts. We are to look at the heart, at the inward man, not the outward man, not what someone looks like. And putting an emphasis on what someone's outward appearance is over things that they cannot help, you know, the, their stature, the color of their skin, the color of their eyes, or whatever it is, uh, that is that is something that man does. That is something that is a, a fruit of the of the fallen sinful state in which we live. God looks at the heart. It is sinful man that looks at the outward appearance. Again, race is a social construct, not a biological construct. So when we talk about race, we know we need to understand that there is only one race, okay? There's only one race. Uh Vody Balkum is the same race as I. Daryl Harrison, Virgil Walker, uh, Samuel Say, I'm just naming some black men that I know and am, am friends with. Uh, they are the same race as I. The Bible is very clear about this. And in fact, could not be more clear about this. Let's look at a few texts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 says that Eve became the mother of all living. So if you trace the generations back and you go back far enough, about 6,000 years ago, or so, you're going to find Adam and Eve. And Eve was the mother of all living. I can trace my ancestry all the way back to Eve. So can Vody Balkum. He traces his ancestry all the way back to Eve. So does everyone on the face of the planet. Okay, race is a social construct, not a biological construct. Now, Different ethnicities came in. They began in the book of Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel or Babel, as some say, and they were trying to build this tower up to God, and God confused their language and scattered them, right? Genesis chapter 11, verse 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face 
of all the earth. Not yet convinced. And uh, I, I do, by the way, apologize for the way my shirt is glowing. Night has fallen here, and this is just the best I can do with the lights I have. So this is not uh, Hollywood quality. So I hope that my shirt is not uh, too annoying. So anyway, uh, let's go to the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation ethnos of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Contrary to what some of the social justice folks would have us believe, God is apparently a pro-border, but I digress. So, dear friends, the Bible could not be more clear. All of us, I don't care where in the world you live, I don't care what color your skin is, all of us were made from one man. We are all one race. We are all one race. Watch this uh, clip. I love this clip from Vody Balkum in a sermon that he preached a couple of years ago at Shepherd's Conference. Watch this. Just two things here that are incredibly important. One is it identifies the distinctions that matter. And secondly, it identifies the division that exists. Now, these distinctions that matter are important because oftentimes we talk about distinctions and we talk about being distinct from one another in terms of our race. Race is actually a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea. It is a constructed idea. You won't find the idea of races in the Bible unless you find it in the proper historical context where we see, number one, that we are all the race of Adam. Amen? One race, one blood. We are all the race of Adam. There is less than a 0.2% genetic difference between any of us in this regard. In fact, we're not even different colors. Amen. Technically, from a genetic perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all actually the same color. Our color comes from our melanin. We've all got melanin just to differing degrees. So it's not that some of us are, you know, this color, some of us are that color. Some of, no, we're just different shades of the same color. Some of us just have more melanin than others. And I want you to hit, listen to me on this. Listen to me. Just because you don't have as much melanin as I do, don't you dare think God doesn't love you as much as he loves me because he gave me more. I just love that clip from Vody. I mean, that was just, that, that is one of those mic drop moments and it was done with uh, such humor and really drove the point home. But Vody Balkum is absolutely right. There is just one race. The Bible is very clear about that. We just have different levels of melanin in our skin. And, and as he pointed out, we're all the same color. And just different levels of melanin. Some people have a little bit more melanin than others. So uh, this, this whole idea of race, that is a social construct, not a biological one. Certainly not a biblical construct. There is one race, but there are different ethnicities. Okay, And that's what Acts seventeen twenty six says. God made from one man, all of mankind, all, all nations, all ethnos. So there are many different ethnicities. There are Russians, there are Chinese, there are Filipinos, there's Swedish, there's Italians, uh, there are Indians, you know, Hispanics, many different ethnicities, but only one race. I want to share something with you that you might find a bit surprising. The very first trip that I made to South Africa was, um, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. And I had a few different South Africans who were black tell me the same thing. I had two or three different people tell me that they take offense that the blacks in the United States call themselves African-American. 
that really surprised me. But they said what what they said was that the, they said the blacks in your country know nothing of Africa. They've never been to Africa, and so it actually offends Africans who were born and live in Africa. It offends them that the blacks in the United States call themselves African American because the vast majority of us here in the United States, black, white, or whatever, we've never been to Africa. And so they actually take offense at that. I, I found that fascinating. And also, why do we use the term African American in the first place? Why does it only apply to uh, black people? Why doesn't it apply to people who live in northern African countries like Sudan or Libya or Egypt? You know, they're not really, they're not black. They're just kind of brown. They're kind of, um, you know, Arab looking, if you will. So we don't call them African-Americans, and yet Libya and Egypt are in Africa. Uh, I have a, a friend who pastors a church here in uh, the United States. He's in Florida, and I'm not going to give his name because I did that one time, and he kind of got some hate mail from it. But um, a wonderful, wonderful guy, pastors a, a good, solid church in Florida. And he was born in what at the time was Rhodesia, is now Zimbabwe. But uh, when he was, he was born in Rhodesia, served in the Rhodesian army, and then the country became Zimbabwe. I don't remember what year that was, but at any rate, served in their army. And at some point, he left uh, Zimbabwe and came here to the United States. He now lives in Florida, pastors a church in Florida, and he's as white as I am. I mean, he, he looks, his skin tone is exactly the same as mine. Now, why don't we call him an African-American? Well, you actually could say that about him because he was born and reared in Africa and now lives in America, an African-American who has the same skin tone that I do. So we just need to do away with this whole hyphenated stuff. If you were born in America, live in America, you're an American regardless of, of your skin tone. You see, the social justice movement and its emphasis on race is designed to create distrust. It is designed to foment envy and anger and distrust between people groups of varying levels of melanin in their skin. Uh, that's what it's designed to do. Critical race theory, intersectionality. This is a secular, godless philosophy that is designed to create strife within a country amongst people of different ethnicities. And we see that, right, in the news. We've seen a lot of this here in the last few months, that uh, parents of children in school have had enough of it. Their kids are being taught intersectionality, critical race theory, and they can see the division that it's causing. Uh, their kids are coming home, and they're they're at odds with their classmates simply because of the color of their skin and they've had enough and they're they're standing up against it good for them but um anyway that homeschooling could do a homeschooling plug there but but at any rate the point is it's designed to create division and what it's doing in the secular world it unfortunately is doing the very same thing in the church it is creating division it is dividing us on things that do not matter it is creating distrust. Uh, some of you have probably heard of a man named Kyle J. Howard, and uh, I have actually preached at the church that Kyle J. Howard used to attend. Kyle James Howard is a guy who is now, he is now fully woke. I mean, he is all into social justice, and he is, I mean, you go through his, his Twitter feed and social media, and uh, honestly, some of the most racist stuff I've ever heard comes from this guy. But I, I've been to the church that he used to attend years ago. And people at this church told me, they said, we don't understand what has happened to Kyle because he is not the same guy that he was when he was here. In fact, they told me that um, many years ago that he was he was the opposite of the way he is now. In fact, he would make comments from time to time saying things like, why does everything have to be about race? But then the the social justice wins several years ago really began to blow and he was 
tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery men, and he and he bought into this social justice stuff, and now everything is about race. Everything is about race with him. Uh, he obviously does not trust white people. He thinks white people are out to get him, or at least he says they are. Uh, some of the most racist things that I have ever seen have come from this guy to the point where he actually said that he would be afraid to be in the same room with James White, who is a, if you're not familiar with him, a uh, theologian and apologist who is Caucasian. He said he would be afraid to be in the same room with James White, literally afraid for his physical safety. Friends, let me tell you something. That is evil. That is wicked. It is, it is Satan who sows discord among the brethren. That is the activity of the enemy. But this is the kind of bad fruit that comes from the social justice movement and that kind of a secular, godless philosophy. Okay, I want to show you now a video clip from Ligon Duncan. Uh, Ligon Duncan is the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And this is, this is a truly troubling video. Watch what he has to say here. This was recorded in 2021. Can you imagine the gospel impact if Bible-believing Protestants, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians had said of their Bible-believing Christian brothers and sisters in Baptist churches and elsewhere, you're, you're not going to kill our brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to defraud our brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to wrongfully imprison our brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not going to mistreat our brothers and sisters. Can you imagine the gospel impact uh, of that? Um, and, you know, it's going to take us 100 years to overcome the trust issues that have come out of that. Do you know why it's going to take a hundred years? Because the social justice proponents keep dredging up past sins. They keep dredging up past wrongdoings. They do not seem to grasp the biblical truth that we just looked at in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. So yeah, it's going to take a hundred years. In fact, I would submit to you it's going to take a lot more than a hundred years if the Lord tarries. Because, dear friends, understand this about the social justice movement. Understand this point. The end game is that there is no end game. Okay? That's very important to understand. The end game is that there is no end game. It feeds upon a perpetual state of victimhood, a perpetual lack of forgiveness. It it feeds upon itself, and it is in order for it to exist, and in order for the people who are promoting it to to acquire and retain power, they have got to create division. They have got to create a system in which there is no forgiveness ever. You know, I, I, I tell people my very best black friends have trouble trusting me for really good reasons. Because people like me... Um, have been doing awful things to them and to their families for four centuries. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to take a while. Dear friends, it is hard for me to put into words just how profoundly unbiblical that statement from Lincoln Duncan is. He says that his best black friends have problems trusting him and for good reason. What good reason? Ligon Duncan is not a slave owner. His father was not a slave owner. His grandfather was not a slave owner. What good reason, on what basis do his Christian black friends have a problem in trusting him? Doesn't the Bible say, say something about love keeps no record of wrong suffered? And we're talking about wrong suffered generations ago. I mean, how unbiblical can you be if that is the case, whoever his best black friends are? If that is the case, then I would submit to you that, that there's an issue on their part. There's a problem. You know, I have black friends. I have black friends. They don't have any problems trusting me. I mean, this friends, this is just so profoundly unbiblical on so many levels. I am shocked that uh, a pastor, and he is the CEO and chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. 
This is just unbelievable to me. If, if that is the case with his black friends, that they have a problem, they have trouble trusting him because of something that happened nearly two centuries ago, then he needs to go in love and confront his black friends in their sin of unforgiveness. And it's not even really a matter of forgiveness because he's never done any of those things. I mean, this is, this is just so profoundly unbiblical. You know, I've heard it said that... Um, there is a um, social justice translation of Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, 1 in the New American Standard Bible says, Therefore there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, the New Social Justice Standard Bible renders Romans 8, 1 this way. Therefore there is now much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. New translation just come out. This is just so egregious to me that men who have been looked up to for so long have been blown about to this degree by the winds of social justice. It's just unreal. On a happier note, one of the great privileges and blessings that has been mine as an evangelist is that by God's grace, I've had opportunities to preach all around the world. I've preached in 28, I think 28 different countries, some of them multiple times, but 28 different countries representing every continent except Antarctica. Uh, No immediate plans to go and preach to the penguins, so I'm probably not going to be able to check Antarctica for my uh, bucket list. I don't think I'll be going there anytime soon, but uh, I've I've been all over the world. And I want to show you a picture. This is just a few a few pictures that I've taken from a few of the more recent trips. Just in the, I think all of these are within the last five years uh, of some of the precious, precious people that I've met. So starting at the top left here, that's a picture I took about five, five, six years ago in India. And then the next one, those are some brothers in Fiji at a seminary that I taught at. The next one there is Singapore. Um, next picture, actually, Singapore as well, but that's Rodney and Fiva Chand over on the left, and they are from American Samoa. There, and there's Conrad in Bewe in Zambia. Ricky, he's a pastor in Texas, but he's Hispanic, and back to Zambia. And uh, that's a dear brother that I met in, uh, uh, met, well, I met him in Ukraine, but he's from Tajikistan. And then that last picture there is of me preaching at a seminary teaching in a seminary in Honduras. and it, it, This is just a small sampling. But look at those pictures there. How many races do you see? One. One race. How many ethnicities do you see? A lot. A lot of different ethnicities. One race. And, dear friends, do you know that it does not matter where in the world I go? It does not matter what country I'm in. does not matter what culture I am in. It does not matter how little they have or how much they have. doesn't matter about you know, varying levels of socioeconomic status. Let me tell you, I've been in some of the poorest parts of the world. Uganda, I've seen poverty that if you have not been out of the United States of America, unless you've been to one of these places... You can't, you can't even imagine the, the kind of poverty that exists in many other places in the world. You cannot even imagine. You, can't, you have to see it for yourself to believe it. Uh, so it doesn't matter what economic status people have. It doesn't even matter what language is spoken. When I am with like-minded believers, there is an instant bond there. There is an instant fellowship there. There's an instant love there. I love these people, and they love me. I can be halfway around the world in some in some country with a completely different culture, completely different language. But when I'm with like-minded believers, I, I love these people, and they love me. Why? Because we're family. We're family. We have been adopted into the family of God through the merits of His Son, Jesus Christ. Read Matthew chapter 10. Read Matthew chapter 12. 
if you want to know who your true family is, our family as Christians is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it does not matter where in the world they are. It does not matter what culture, what economic status, what language is spoken. You know what else doesn't matter? You know what else doesn't matter? It doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin. I can meet someone in the first five minutes. I love that person. And I would and I would I would give my life for them. And they would do it for me. There's no mistrust. You know, I when I meet somebody in the world who is not a Christian, I don't have uh I don't I don't have a reason to to trust that person if, if they're not regenerate. I mean I, that but when it comes to the body of Christ, when I know I'm dealing with a, a Christian, a truly regenerate person, my my assumption is is that that's my brother, that's my sister, and my assumption is is that they have my best interest at heart, and I have their best interest at heart. There should not be mistrust. There should not be division. There should not be suspicion. Not when it comes to the family of God, and so what the social justice is is doing it is it is incorporating worldly, godless, leftist political philosophy and trying to trying to to eisegete it in, if you will, into the body of Christ, and it is causing division where there need not be any division. One race, spiritually speaking. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, spiritually speaking, we are a chosen race. Spiritually speaking, we are in Christ. And there is a spiritual race, if you will. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed Father, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you loved me. Dear friends, the unity that we are to have as brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the testimonies. God has designed our unity to be a testimony to the watching world, to be a testimony to the world that that Jesus is someone different. Jesus is not just another religious leader, that Jesus is God. There should be something so otherworldly about the unity that we as Christians have with one another that it is to be a testimony to the watching world. And I ask you this question. I ask you this question. Do you believe that the evangelical, whatever that word means anymore, but for lack of a better term, do you believe that the evangelical world is more unified today than it was five years ago before the social justice really began to ramp up? And not that it wasn't going on. It was, but it just became on everybody's radar. Do you think we are more unified now or five years ago? much more unified five years ago. I mean, not perfectly, obviously, but who in their right mind would look at the state of the evangelical church today and say, oh yeah, more unified now than we were before social justice became so popular, began to blow about our circles. Not even close. I mean, as I said at the beginning of this video, I have been shocked. So many of us have been shocked at uh, men that we, many of us have looked up to for many years, and we have been shocked and dismayed and saddened by how some of these men have been blown about by these winds of social justice. And we are far less unified now than we were five years ago. So I hope that this conference is going to be of help to you. hope it will be a good resource uh, that we can plant our flag in the ground and we can stand against this worldly, godless philosophy that is wreaking such havoc. May we reject it. In the name of Christ, may we reject it. 
Okay, dear ones, uh, thank you very much for watching this. Again, my videos, my presentation, it's, it's not intended to be a super deep dive. I just want you to be aware of the cars that are coming along this social justice train. And in my next presentation, we're going to look at the egalitarian car, and we're going to look at the homosexual car. All right, that's coming up in my next presentation. All right, thank you very much for watching. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.